Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Checkup Podcast from Medcast. In this series, we discuss the importance of physical activity for the patients and just how far it goes in preventing and improving specific health conditions. And most importantly, discuss the underlying mechanisms of just how physical activity helps and the most up-to-date evidence of which types of exercise are potentially better for each specific medical condition. In this second episode in the series, Dr. Alison Vickers, a GP of 33 years, and David Jenkins, Professor of Sports and Exercise Science from the University of Sunshine Coast and the University of Queensland, discuss the role of exercise in prevention and management of dementia. Hi, David. Great to be chatting with you again. And thank you so much for your passion in sharing this information. Thank you, Alison. It's a pleasure. Last week, we talked about those magic myokines of muscle and the role that they play in not only preventing cancer, but actually decreasing the recurrence in survivors. And truly, it's information I've taken on board personally uh, and also taken back into my practice. My patients have been hearing about it all week. This week, another fascinating topic, cognitive impairment. I think as GPs, you know, we all know that exercise is one of the most important modifiable risk factors for preventing dementia. I think sometimes I, I need to remind myself of just how profound that effect is, that people who regularly exercise from middle age have up to a 30% less chance of developing dementia and, you know, up to 45% for Alzheimer's specifically. Such convincing stuff. If I had a drug rep in offering samples for a therapy that was that good for preventing dementia, I'm sure I wouldn't be turning them away at the door and I'd be signing for lots of samples. The big question is why? What is the underlying mechanism for this effect? As you can imagine, the, the research now is there's a real imperative to try and better understand the relationship between exercise and reduced risk of dementia and uh, impaired cognitive function. Uh, if I can step back maybe 10 years, there was a fair bit of research 10 years ago was looking at beta amyloid. And beta amyloid is a peptide or protein that contributes to the accumulation of plaques in the brain. And it's been fairly well described in, across the medical literature that those people who are at greatest risk of Alzheimer's disease have an accumulation of this junk, this plaque, which interferes with the neuronal transmission, the nerve cells in the brain. So the early research in the exercise uh, dementia nexus ha were, was having a look at how exercise was potentially going to mitigate or, or modify this beta amyloid accumulation. And it's been inconsistent. In some studies which have shown over the years that exercise can reduce beta amyloid, others haven't. So we've sort of moved forward now and understanding that there may be a relationship, but it's not cause and effect between beta amyloid and accumulation and exercise. The area that's attracting the most attention at the moment relates to growth factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this is a really, really interesting area because this BDNF, and the acronym is almost more complicated than, than, the, than the actual words, but the uh, BDNF is, we know that this significantly increases the growth of nerve or brain cells in nervous tissue, particularly in the hippocampus. And this has been identified through animal models. It's been shown also, and I know you, you're itching to ask me the question, whether exercise increases the size of the hippocampus. And the answer to that, I'm going to actually jump ahead of you here, Alison. The evidence suggests that yes, the hippocampus will grow in adults, in both animal models and humans, particularly the left hippocampus in humans, as a result of physical activity and exercise that has continued over many, many years. 
Now, the growth of the SEPA campus as a result of exercises has been attributed to this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, this growth factor, which also has been associated with having, in, we can increase uh, levels of this brain-derived neurotrophic factor in the brain and in the circulating blood in response to exercise. Just fascinating to think that as we're exercising, we're causing these increased levels of BDNF, and I agree that is a really hard acronym. But this BDNF is actually growing our brain cells, and we can see enlargement in areas like the hippocampus, which, if my memory serves me correctly, is associated with memory and learning. And this is one of the first areas which shows atrophy with dementia. It really explains an article that I came across last year, which I saved because it was to do with gardening. And given that I really hate things like going to the gym but love gardening, I'm always trying to find evidence for myself that gardening is a great substitute. I think it was a study of around 40 people in their 70s who did 20 minutes of gardening, things like planting, raking, fertilizing and watering, so nothing too heavy. And they actually measured their levels of BDNF after they'd been in the garden and found that they were increased. It'd be really great to check out the size of the hippocampus in gardeners. I often recommend gardening for patients, although one of my patients following my advice was bitten by a funnel web, so I guess nothing is without its hazards. But coming back to the BDNF, how do we think physical activity increases the BDNF? Okay, you're going to love this one, Alison. Although the mechanisms or the, or the chemistry is, is not, the understanding is not complete, it is suspected that a myokine... Uh, <laughs> the myokines again! <laughs> good reaction, Alison. Um, it's a myokine called uh, irisin that is released from muscle during exercise triggers the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is tri which is extraordinary, isn't it, really? Because, well, I mean, it's extraordinary in a way, but it also explains this, this relationship between exercise and the potential to reduce cognitive decline or to uh, certainly uh, prevent it. And the other thing just I was thinking about it is there's a term that your listeners will be very familiar with is the plasticity, the plasticity of, of the uh, of the brain tissue. And this plasticity has been recognized in, in recent years. You know, we can prevent cognitive decline. We don't necessarily have to accept it. Now, once upon a time, it probably was thought that the brain tissue was on a deteriorating downward curve all you know, from, from the time we past adolescence but of course we know that's not right now so really we we don't accept it we keep exercising so that we're getting those myokines who are then promoting the bdnf and helping to keep on growing brain cells are there any other things that increase the bdnf just thinking of what else can we do to get more of this great stuff well, th there's some research, and I, I don't think I can speak about this with any real confidence to your listeners, but there's some research examining the relationship between the microbiome in the, in the gut, the gut bacteria, and the good gut bacteria produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. And your listeners may be familiar with the, the gut-brain axis, 
that's been explored by very um, by very clever people around the world. And it's thought that perhaps the gut in its uh, gut bacteria in producing this butyrate, the short chain fatty acid, the short chain fatty acid may actually influence production of neurotransmitters and somewhere in the chain, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor as well. So I would think, not that we can book in a time to speak in about 10 years, (laughs) but the jigsaw will be very much more complete in 10 years' time in terms of the various mechanisms. But, But it's really encouraging to know that, and you made mention of this, gardening... And even low levels of physical activity will increase the brain-derived neurotrophic factor. We don't have to be running marathons. We don't have to be overexerting ourselves. I know last time we spoke about high-intensity exercise and the potential prevention of cancer. It seems, even though we haven't yet determined the most appropriate duration and intensive exercise, it is absolutely encouraging to know that mild exercise is likely to elicit changes in this very important protein, this factor, this neurotrophic factor, it has the potential to prevent the development or the risks. But also in the early stages of disease, even though this hasn't been shown, I think a lot of researchers are optimistic that exercise could actually slow the progression of dementia and Alzheimer's disease as well. So as long as you and I keep exercising, we will be here in 10 years to do the podcast about the microbiota when more is known about that, because that's another fascinating area which just pops up every now and then for us GPs. And certainly we know that diet is therefore going to be important, but I guess diet and exercise, both in terms of insulin resistance. What, what do we know about insulin resistance and how it relates to cognitive impairment or preventing it? I think we can almost extend it to cause and effect here. So insulin resistance is not good for cognitive function. And the way that the researchers have explained this is that with insulin resistance, glucose uptake into cells is likely to be impaired. Now, if glucose uptake into the brain cells is impaired, there's going to be a reduced capacity for plasticity and growth of new cells. And also, if you want to step back from the plasticity for a minute, the reduced uptake and availability of glucose for these very essential brain cells is likely to reduce cognitive function anyway. So insulin resistance is absolutely the sorts of thing that exercise can work against. We know that exercise regularly reduces insulin resistance, improves glucose handling. So that's a very important thing. And I I know you're going to ask me about another very, very important area that uh, you're very fond of, which is... Oh, yeah, you knew. I'm kind of going, we have to get to inflammation sometime. (laughs) You know, you've been sending me all these amazing articles and I, I should be doing other stuff and I just can't stop reading them. This is to my mind, just such exciting stuff. I share your enthusiasm because every road from inflammation appears to lead to a chronic disease and dementia and Alzheimer's disease is no exception. The way that researchers have looked to explain this is vascular health. And we know that chronic low-grade inflammation, which is the actual burden that a lot of people in society now have to carry over decades, has a, a really poor, poor outcome on vascular health. So the blood flow to the peripheries is going to be compromised. And the explanation to extend that is that 
if blood flow through to the parts of the brain, like the hippocampus, where we desperately need the, this plasticity to ward off the, the dementia and Alzheimer's disease, if the vascular health is going to be compromised as a result of low-grade chronic inflammation, we're going to be in trouble. Now, you might ask, and uh, <laughs> I'm sort of cutting you off at the pass here, Alison, but again, we, you know, the next question you're going to ask is, how does exercise influence inflammation or low-grade inflammation? And we can talk about this at length on another uh, another occasion, but exercise, again, through myokines released from the muscle, it releases anti-inflammatory cytokines and myokines. So exercise, people who exercise on a regular basis are characterized by lower levels of CRP and other markers of inflammation. So the question that I really needed to get my head around at the beginning is the idea that inflammation probably thousands of years ago was a good thing. It, it was an evolutionary benefit. That was acute. W would you say that that was the case, that we needed inflammation to get rid of bugs that were infecting our systems and this has now gone awry? Well, and we still do. Uh, you know, if, if, if you or I were to get ill or, or one of your, the patients of one of your listeners was to get ill, we rely so heavily upon our inflammatory response in order to, to elicit the, the necessary uh, responses of the body to combat that. But it's the low-grade chronic inflammation which over decades and over a lifetime has this insidious and irreparable, causes irreparable damage, particularly to the vasculature. There's a balance in the body between pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. So this balance for a lot of people now is completely out of whack. And it, it flies under the radar. The only way that we can detect low-grade chronic inflammation is by measuring markers such as uh, C-reactive protein in the blood. What we need to do is to appreciate that our diet and lack of exercise are significant contributors to this low-grade chronic inflammation. I know you talked about it at the beginning of uh, this podcast. I just wanted to summarise again in terms of which exercises are best. What do we think we can do optimally? What you're saying is we can extrapolate from what we do know that any exercise is good. You know, do anything rather than nothing, but potentially there will be a time where we'll be able to say, well, you do need to do this amount of intense exercise to get maximal benefit. That's a very, very good summary. And it's, I'm going to return to one other point that I made at the very end of our last podcast, Alison. That is this BDNF goes up in response to exercise, but it comes back to baseline within about 20 minutes. So something that we talked about last time was that perhaps if we want to take advantage of these spikes in BDNF as a result of activity, we need to be active more than once a day. And if we can be active twice or three times a day, we're going to get three different spikes of BDNF. And you can see logically that this is going to be a, a far better protector against deterioration and loss in cognition if we can get more spikes than in just exercising once. But I mean, again, Alison, it might be 10 years or more before the research has actually caught up with these ideas that we're talking about now. One of the studies that uh, I had a look at was that dancing, and they were already mildly cognitively impaired. So these, this was a group with some cognitive impairment. They danced and their hippocampuses got bigger and they had significant improvement in their um, memory, attention, body balance. So I guess this is telling us something, isn't it? Uh, that there is some data there, but it kind of brings everything together, doesn't it? The idea of 
you know, here we have physical activity, racing myokinins, BDNF, all these marvelous things. And at the same time, we're challenging ourselves cognitively, which is kind of growing that need for neuroplasticity. Would that be how you would interpret that? Yes, yes. No, you touched on something very nice here, Alison. If you can combine the exercise with some cognitive, something that's cognitive challenging, uh, cognitively challenging, like dancing or uh, trying to do a crossword while you're out for a walk, but I wouldn't try and probably do that. Uh, that's probably not going to end very well. It's not good falls risk behaviour, no. <laughs> no, but, but you're right. I mean, I would love to think that in 10 years there are going to be some well-designed experiments that are going to actually test this. But, but as you said before, it's entirely reasonable to hypothesise that, yes, this is the likely outcome. So absolutely. It's a very exciting area. Exercise at all, some strenuous exercise. And if you can do exercise where you're challenged cognitively, then potentially you've got everything working for you. And based on this, I'm going to make sure that when my husband goes out running now, he's doing timetables in his head. Oh, maybe otherwise I'll take him dancing. Who knows? David, thank you so much again. This is just wonderful and such helpful information. I think it's it's helpful for us to tell our patients because it just makes promoting exercise so much more powerful. But also it's powerful for us personally. It's kind of very good to reinforce very good lifestyle. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alison. That was Dr. Alison Vickers and Professor David Jenkins discussing the latest evidence in the use of physical activity in prevention and management of dementia in primary care. The Checkup series of podcasts is brought to you by Medcast. Medcast offers a range of CPD courses for doctors, nurses and allied health professionals. Our courses range from the popular Hot Topics series of workshops and webinars to practical critical care courses. Our most recent new course is covering aged and palliative care in general practice. This course will be presented by Dr. Alison Vickers, Dr. Genevieve Yates and Dr. Simon Morgan. To find out more about the course structure and content, visit our website. Thank you for listening. 